Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. A musical shapeshifter, Dev Hines has evolved from dance punk to eccentric folk to the 80s-informed, socially-minded R&B he crafts today as Blood Orange. His 2016 album Freetown Sound, his third under the Blood Orange name, touches on themes including musical identity, sexuality, politics, and what it means to be a black man living in America today. As a songwriter and collaborator, meanwhile, he has worked with artists ranging from Solange to David Byrne of the Talking Heads. In this lecture at the 2016 Red Bull Music Academy with host Lauren Martin, Hines talked about his career up to that point. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Please help me welcome Mr. Dave Hines. That was very warm. We've not even said anything yet. Lovely. Um, I wanted to start with the idea of place today. So um, a writer for The New Yorker many years ago called E.B. White, he said... Uh, a New Yorker is also a person who was born somewhere else and came to New York in the quest of something. Where did you come to New York from and what were you in, in quest of? Um, I was in quest of an apartment when I came, when I first that, came that's to hard New enough. York. It took a while, actually. Um, yeah, uh, it's kind of weird because um, I was actually talking about this recently, how I never... I never moved to New York, so I never had like um, that moment. I kind of just went there on a on a whim, and I took my backpack, and I stayed on a friend of a friend's couch in Long Island City, and then it's like nine years later, and I'm still there. So I never had like a you know like a. I'm leaving, bye everyone, like London kind of a farewell thing. And I, I kind of regret that a little bit because I, <laughs> I, they always seem fun. <laughs> Did you kind of go on the tail end uh, of a musical project? You went on tour and then you just decided to stay? Like what was like the whim of going there because it has such like a magnetic pull as a place? Yeah, um, yeah, not really. I mean, it was after the first Lightspeed Champion album and I toured that and that had come to an end and I wasn't really living anywhere at that point London didn't feel like a home because I'd moved out to tour and so the idea of just kind of going somewhere seemed uh, really appealing especially if they spoke English <laughs> so, so I thought of New York because <laughs> initially I did think of you know maybe going to France or somewhere I, I remember that I mean I was like 20, 21, and then, uh, yeah, I just, like, I just went to New York. So, uh, like, a romantic notion became, like, a realist notion, and you just had to get on with it? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Once you got to New York, uh, what did you start to do? Like, how did you form um, emotional habits and, and musical habits once you get to a new place? Mm. I started writing music that would eventually be the second Lightspeed album. Um, it's funny because um, 
with every <laughs> with every Blood Orange release, they always talk about it like the New York album, mm. which I always think is funny because the second Lightspeed Champion album was the first album I wrote in New York. And so now there's been four <laughs> since then, you know. So yeah, I started writing that album. And then actually um, I started realizing I would write songs and my my voice wouldn't hit the things I knew it could do, which wasn't much anyway, but I, I, it, it wasn't going to the places I, I was aware it could go to. And then I started losing it more frequently. And so I decided to see a doctor and they discovered I had like nodes and all that stuff in my throat. And so I actually had to come back to London to have this operation and I couldn't speak for like, I mean, like three months and I had to like whisper for another two months. And during that period, I started working more on my, I guess like instrumentation and piano playing. But I started writing a lot of instrumentals and a couple of them, I think are on that second Lightspeed album. But it was, that was actually like uh, really informative for like a lot of things that I do now because I, I couldn't use my voice. And I mean, it was never really like a strength, but um, not being able to use it really made me focus a lot more on instruments. And so it was kind of like a blessing in some way. There's, um, you have quite a, a, a physical way of thinking about music that's quite internal for you. Can you explain that and how you work through writing music with this internal way of, of working? Yeah, well, I write a lot of music in my head, not necessarily like fully formed pieces of music, but um, I mean, it's going to sound weird, but I'm never really too worried about um, the execution of the music. It's more just kind of creating the story or atmosphere and instrumentation and I usually work like that like I'll write a lot of things down and I'll have in my head and I'll kind of know the the end goal and then it's the later period so I always feel like um I always say that I'm never really like making an album in periods of time like people ask me if I'm making an album and I usually say no because I'm just I have a bunch of these ideas but then it'll there'll be a period where something will click in my head and then I start mixing and editing. And I always feel like that's the actual period when I'm making the album. Because the ideas, I don't want to say easy because it's not necessarily like easy, but the ideas are very free and they just kind of come to me. And then it's the meshing it together. I, I don't I view it like building a house or something. It's like I have the idea in my head, but then I have to actually go and build the damn house, you know? <laughs> that's a little different you um but I, I remember reading something really thoughtful from you and you said that certain chord progressions and certain ways of writing music are like um aesthetically appealing like combinations of color and you think about music in terms of color uh, can you go into that a little bit yeah yeah I, I do um and it's and it's the main reason why I use a lot of um chord progressions over and over again I don't really have any shame in it because <laughs> it's really just uh please me and I and it's patterns that I think are really really nice and so a lot of themes repeat. It's why I love 
times in my albums, um, musical themes repeat mm -hmm. over and over again um, because I'll be working on music and then that theme will come back in my head and it'll fit perfectly. And so I, I, I just want to use it. Um, but yeah, it's color and pattern based, you know. When we're using like New York as almost like a base note of a place where you, you lay like the musical foundation on, I know that uh, in like a, a process of writing your music, you do you do field recordings of the city and they inspire um, more written musical parts that are more fleshed out. Can you talk about that as well? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I record a lot of field sounds kind of daily, really. I have so many it's pretty crazy um a little creepy too i guess but um why creepy <laughs> i mean you shouldn't really just record people daily <laughs> but um i do i don't know but um yeah so i, I record a lot of that and um I, I i always love the the different textures and sounds and there's melodies in it you know there, there are melodies and sometimes um especially with this last album, I would write from those street sounds, mm. whether there was an actual melody in there or not, like there's a, like a rhythm to it and I'll write from that. But then sometimes they're actually, there's a song um, uh, called With Him on the last album and also Squash Squash and they're both kind of two sides of the same coin essentially. Um, one's an extension of the other and that started from um, a recording in Central Park where there was a uh, opera singer under, there's a, there's a bridge in Central Park that I think is the most acoustically perfect sounding bridge. And uh, I was walking towards there and there was a female opera singer singing, um, I can't remember what it was, but she was singing something. and. Um, but then to my left, there was like a, a, a saxophone kind of playing and um, they were meshing together so amazingly. And I, and I think on that audio, I'm walking with someone and they're talking to me and I'm not listening to them. And so you can kind of hear them on the album talking. I have no idea what they're talking about, but um, I recorded that and then wrote the melody for with him that's over the top of that, mm -hmm. um, stemming from there, trying to do um, almost like Puccini type melodies to kind of reference the, the opera singer, mm -hmm. but then built from the saxophone parts, additional saxophone parts. So that song was made from that street recording. I think we should listen to that actually. Let's listen to, this is uh, your, one of your songs off your second, where is it? Called With Him. Hey there, at this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah, I'm bummed too. Anyway, let's go back to Couch Wisdom. Tell me why you would go to the effort of, of fleshing it out yourself rather than just instilling uh, a, like a phone sound recording in an album. Oh, you mean like why I would actually record the sound? Oh. Um, well, you know, I don't really, uh, doesn't really make sense for me to use other found, other fields of sound, um, especially because it's so um, 
personal kind of everything I'm doing. And, and you know, and part of the joy of making music is you making music, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's really, I mean, even when I, I was younger and like around Test High School's times, like me and um, friends would recreate other people's songs for, just for fun. And um, and then we would kind of do, try and do like our own versions of it, but like that is like the most fun thing, like creating something that is that I think for me anyway that I can be a, a fan of. So for me, using making field recordings and then writing songs based around them is like is really exciting because it's something I've created. I still have that kind of like schoolboy feeling of like like damn I can't believe I did that that is close to this thing that I like you know so it's like a mirroring your own achievements like a mirror of the things that you love and the affection between those things yeah no definitely I mean I'm like I mean my friends can attest for it but I'm the biggest fanboy <laughs> that you can find of like music like of things that I'm a fan of I'm like a diehard fan of it and so um it's really i'm trying to i'm always trying to kind of for my own benefit get to a point of these things that i'm a fan of actually that might be a lovely moment to move into somebody else who very much embedded in new york who came to new york from somewhere else in quest of something and that's arthur russell um can you tell us about your affection for Arthur the person as well as the musician because his his posthumous legacy is very much shaped around character as well as sound and as well as place and I think that's such an interesting appeal for him as a person could you explore that a little bit more from yourself yeah I can try <laughs> um yeah I you know I don't know it's it's been an ongoing um experience of finding his music and uh, <clears throat> it being so appealing to me on so many different levels. I mean, being a fan of uh, the Corn Out of Context album when that came out and seeing that there was a cello on the cover was very exciting yeah. for me <laughs> as a young cello player. So, um, but then finding out these different avenues he also worked in was, was kind of... Um, uh, very warming for me because I've always um, been such a, a lover of different avenues of music and seeing of someone else doing that and but their handprint being very firmly on it all is um, very inspiring mm -hmm. and, on, and on top of that the uh, yeah, I do feel, I feel like he really em embodied a, a form of New York. And he was really, I mean, he essentially did something to all of my different tastes in music. Right. <laughs> and what would they be? Like, what's you know, like the, the collage effect in your mind of that? Um, yeah, I guess dance music, classical more like soundscapey type things. And his melodies, are, I think, are like 
I mean, if people are a fan, they would agree that I like no other. So yeah, no, that's it's definitely been a um, a big influence, and I'm and I'm still finding stuff. You know, I'm still like learning things about him and his music, which you know, it's great. I I like that. I I try and with all the things that I'm a big lover of, I I want to constantly be surprised. Like be in the act of discovering yeah. all the time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, when did you start playing cello? Tell me about your relationship with the cello. Um, <laughs> so in my school in in Essex in England, they they would come round when you're maybe like nine and ask if you what instrument you want to play, and <laughs> and everyone in my class said drums and guitar and so I said cello <laughs> and it kind of sums me up now so really. it was like an antagonistic thing like yeah. I don't want to play what you're playing full contrarian and um, <laughs> but then uh which this also kind of sums me up too I then decided to learn those instruments afterwards <laughs> because yeah um and um so what once you got a cello once you had to get well, one actually now, this is this is kind of um, thing I I never had a cello because we couldn't afford one, so it was always um, rented from Redbridge, which was the the council there, and um, and I actually didn't um, own a cello till uh, about two years ago. It's the first time I ever bought one, and it recently broke. <laughs> I was playing a, a solo show in New York and. Um, I put the cello down, did whatever else I was doing, this mid-show, and then picked the cello up <laughs> to play again and noticed it was out of tune, which was odd because I played it three minutes ago. Looked down, D-string is flapping, even more confused, moved to the neck, snapped in half. <laughs> and someone had stepped on it while I was playing. <laughs> there's, there's a very audible wave of groans from all the musicians. I know, I like you felt that. that. That's, I, I, I'm, thank you for feeling that. That's really... Yeah. But how did that affect your relationship with an instrument that you didn't own necessarily? What is your mm. idea of playing an instrument as a musician, as an artist, if you don't have the physical thing to hand? How does that affect your relationship with the music? Yeah, that's, that's interesting, yeah. Because um, I'm really, I'm not like a, I don't really care about, um, I think because of that, I don't really care about owning instruments. It, I, only until this month did I get a guitar and all the other shows, all the shows that I played with a guitar in Blood Orange was like a borrowed or rented guitar because I just didn't have one because I, I felt like I could just, yeah, I just never, I don't have that, um, I guess that precious um, feeling. But instead I'm just kind of excited about playing any instrument because it's always, you know, going to be kind of different. I don't really need uh, the warmth of, you know, something I own. Okay. And so, yeah, that, that has, I think that has affected me a lot, actually. And it's probably part of why a lot of the time I write things in my head, because I never really had 
like instruments to, <laughs> to play stuff on. Um, it's kind of interesting. This is a self-realization in real time that you just witnessed. You're getting but. an exclusive here. <laughs> when, when you're learning an instrument like the cello, um, I can imagine that a music teacher d directs you to certain people. Like, this is the person that you should be, be studying if you study this instrument. Were there people that you were told to study when you were studying cello? And how did you feel about being told who to pay attention to for a particular instrument? Well, I was always a big fan of the Bach cello suites. That was always, I'm a big fan of Bach in, in general. It's funny, you know, because I, I, I feel like all these things that when I was younger that I was told to pay attention to or I did actually um, study, I've now at 30 started re-studying all of it, which is, I mean, I don't know if that's just a thing that happens, but it's, it's really been, like I recently just bought a bunch of Bach sheet music to like try and finally like understand a lot of those like counterpoints and things. And, um, but yeah, no, who else? I'm, I'm fucking derailing. Yeah, Bach and, um, oh yeah, I really, I, I loved Cazals. I really loved Pablo Cazals when I was younger. Who is that? Um, Pablo Casals was a cellist and he was actually the cellist that discovered the Bach Suites. He found them in a, in a store in Spain with his, with his dad. I mean, he was like looking, you know, at a time where you had to go into stores and buy sheet music to get new music in general, you know. Um, and he found them. And, but he was an amazing cellist, had a really crazy um, kind of style compared to a lot of the cleaner styles now his stuff was pretty uh rugged and he would um you know it, it was pretty rough around the edges he was there's that quote of his um where someone asked he i, I can't remember how old he was when he died but it was pretty old and so towards the end of his death someone asked him why he still practiced all day and he said because he's starting to notice a slight difference you know he, he was constantly trying to better himself. Um, but when I was younger, I used to kind of obsess over that. And then, of course, like Yo-Yo Ma, because he's the one. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that was people I looked to then. But then, you know, I was really... Um, my sister played piano, and that's kind of the reason any music in me even really happened, because... Um, I, I would cry when my sister would go to a piano lesson when I was really young. And so my mom would like let me go sit in on piano lessons. And that was really the first music exposure and that I had. And so I'd kind of play piano and had, after a while I did take lessons from that same teacher, Mrs. Chalice in uh, Essex. <laughs> Yeah, but um, but yeah, no. So um, so my sister was a, was a just a big influence musically, growing up, and then she would play all the musicals and stuff, and so um, so that was always something that I was like looking to, like uh, trying to play like hair, and then playing trying to play songs from like uh, 
funny girl and um you know like swing time and all those things <laughs> it sounds like a lot of your musical practice has for many years not actually been about practicing it's been about observing other musicians like drawing from them mm. writing music in your head uh without possibly access or ease of access yeah. to instruments how is that accumulated over the years with your written processed recorded engineered albums what's been the influence <laughs> of that um well you know another thing i was just th just thinking is that that's probably why i ended up dancing so much too because i would um watch a lot of those things and a lot of those musicals and um instantly want to imitate some form of it and the easiest form to imitate would be to dance but you know i really fell into production stuff the the, the first um, actual production credit I got was um, a song by an artist called uh, Diana Vickers, who was actually, um, she was an, like an X Factor UK mm -hmm. contestant. <laughs> she didn't win, but um, she, um, yeah, she, so it was like after the show, and for some reason, I, I guess she, she loved uh, the first Lightspeed album okay. and asked to write with me. And so I went in, into a studio and it was just me, her, and an engineer. And so I just played a bunch of stuff, like played drums, bass, guitar. I didn't even check if things were in tune. I was just, because in my mind, I was just writing things. Um, did that. Then after that, she went, on to do like a, a musical, I can't remember which one, but like, you know, the release in music was essentially put aside. Year later, get an email saying like, okay, so uh, what's the fee for your producer credit? And I was just like, what? <laughs> so confused, because I always believed that the song would be replayed. Um, and it, it wasn't. And that's the first production credit I ever got on anything. And kind of made me think that maybe I could, but then I, I felt like the song didn't really sound good. So I wasn't too... It, it made me kind of want to do, like, a better version of things when I know what's actually happening. Um, and I can kind of be in control. But even then, I didn't really... It wasn't anything I particularly was striving for. And it wasn't really till I met Solange and and actually Theophilus London too. Yes. And they both were kind of would ask me opinions of things and I would write with them and I would, you know, then kind of the weight would kind of fall in terms of like the engineering mm -hmm. side. And it and it wasn't really until like those two kind of started giving me confidence in stuff mm. that I started really producing. With the um, when you when you met Solange uh, for like your first sessions, it was in LA with Theophilus London, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you um, were already research. playing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you you were playing Solange uh, parts of your first record uh, as Blood Orange. Mm. Uh, could we perhaps play something from that so people can get a sense of like yeah, the progression of what you've been doing? That Maybe is cool. Sophie Boulevard. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. Um, so, what's the story behind this song? Because it is your your use of perspective 
is so fascinating in how you write how you write lyrics. Uh, who is the the person that kind of inspired this record, Sophie Boulevard record? Um, that record was half um, half about myself, just moving to New York and and dancing in New York and and going out to um, like Vogue nights and places like that. And then also about Octavia St. Laurent. And actually, that song, I wrote it to scenes. I used to do a thing where I'd write music to film scenes. Um, (laughs) Another weird exercise of mine. But I would, um, a film I like, I would put it on and I would just imagine uh, having to write music to, to match the film. Would it be music to match the film in your own emotional world or music to match the film as a soundtrack? Um, in my own world. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so I was, I, it's so, I remember so clearly, but I had a, I was booking a lot of solo Blood Orange shows in New York at that time that would be at like 2 a.m. and not many people there, you know, um, Angus might have been at a few of those, actually. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and so I had a show that night and I started making something Boulevard to match Paris' Burning. And I started editing the scenes um, up and then making music on top of it. And that and I that demo is actually still online. It's on it's there somewhere on YouTube. Okay, well we, we can hear the album version of that then. Um you were saying you don't uh perform that song live very often. Why is that? I just forget about it. <laughs> it's really um but I wanna start playing it live again after hearing it. It sounds cool. <laughs> well tell us um Tell us about how you how how you wrote a song like that. Tell us about the writing of that song. Mm. What are the, what are the chords? What are the strings? <laughs> like, you see where I'm going with this? You see where I'm going? Oh my god. Okay. I, I, you know what? I'll, I'll just. I'll, I'll, That's my guy. Okay. <laughs> That's my guy. And so, I mean, that was a piano. And, it was kind of an improvisation that I was doing at uh, at BAM because they would let me use their um, studio to dance in whenever there's no one there and they have a piano there. So I bring my stuff and record these improvisations. And so uh, the piano on uh, I Know was from improvisation that I then kind of like chopped up and made into into that song and so I mean it's always kind of I was saying like when I was walking around upstairs like if there's any equipment or a studio somewhere I can use I, I will like use it you know it's it's, and I'm so impatient that a lot of the times things on my album are the way they are is almost because I'm I'm so impatient so if it's me if there's a song on my record where it's me playing all the parts it's because I just wanted that song to exist in that moment and if there's like another singer on it or another bassist it's because they were there or they could come in the next like hour (laughs) and then it can happen and same thing like if there's 
if I had a piano, if I like owned a piano, I'd probably do an entire piano album. You know, if I had a day in a studio with just the bass and drums, I'd probably do a whole album with just bass and drums. And so your whole sound is based on like the necessity of the fragmentation of like your schedule and your ideas of movement in a room. It's so interesting that you'd say you'd write piano tracks in a dance studio. Like, do you think about dancing when you write on the piano? Yeah, no, uh, a lot of the time. I mean, in that particular moment, it was more, um, I was just taking a break and just playing piano. Um, but it's on my mind. That song actually has a dance video to it that I made like a couple years ago and haven't put out yet because I'm a freak. But um, yeah, it's uh, piano and dance is a very connected thing in my mind. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we've talked about movement, we've talked about instruments, we've talked about sound. Let's talk about the instrument that everybody has, which is a voice. <sighs> Here we go. Uh, it, it, don't worry, I didn't make you sing. It's fine. No. Um, you've, um, we have a, a voice that I'd like people to, and, and piano that I'd like people to experience like in, in loud and full. Uh, tell us why you love Nina Simone. Oh man, um, Nina is just to me the ultimate, um, just the ultimate, really. I mean, from her voice, it, there's so much. I mean, these are all things I think everyone knows, but it's just the expression and the feelings that she puts across. Uh, in her voice and in her piano playing. She's like maybe one of my favorite pianists that's ever lived. And why is that? What is it about her, her playing of the piano that's so interesting to you? Um, well, you know, she, I don't even know this, but she always had this thing where she wanted to, you know, she really wanted to be like a classical pianist playing in like Carnegie Hall. Um, and so you can you can hear the the technicality in there, but you can you can also feel that like pain of never being able to really get the respect as a pianist that I f that she I feel like maybe rightly deserved. Um, and so the, the combination is just uh, unreal. I mean, it could be a, a, you know a song written by someone else that had a completely different meaning, and she can play it and sing it and in her arrangement and it's the most, most breathtaking thing you'll ever hear. It's really, it's so painful watching older uh, Nina Simone stuff and I don't know, I get a pain from it that I don't know if it's the same pain other, other people feel. It's not because she can sometimes be like incoherent and you know a little like not there, but it's that you see this thing where she didn't quite get. She felt like she didn't quite get the respect that she she deserves, and and I was like looking at this Marvin Gaye interview recently. This crazy interview. That I don't know where it's from, but it's half an hour long and he's talking about he's kind of talking talking about the same thing in a very different way i mean he's talking about um 
at that time there would be uh, Grammy Awards for best R&B singer and then best singer and he would win best R&B singer and it wouldn't be televised and then best singer would be televised and he's just you can see he's so kind of defeated from being told that he can't he's his voice is not worthy of being honored on television which is insane and it, it it's really this stuff is really sad and i i do get sad about it because it's only really when these when these people die that you that people decide to like honor their genius because there's no uh consequence then you know but if the person's alive then it's i don't know what they think the consequence could be but to them there is one i i i think about this with um i think about stevie wonder a lot and obviously he's someone that we all know is a genius and we all love him think he's amazing but i i, I don't know if he's truly celebrated as much as he really should be because it's so next level the stuff he's done i mean the music he's given to the world and the influence he's given and the and the influence on so many different levels as well like we're talking production songwriting uh musicality how he played instruments how he played drums i mean he if he was just a drummer alone he could be one of the greatest drummers that ever lived um and so so you know i think about this and obviously i, I i'm naming black artists and i think it is a case i think you know there obviously is a hierarchy when it comes to honoring not just musicians but people in different fields and and you know it's the same thing is for women too like women are underappreciated in regards to men in music and black and asian indian men are underappreciated in regards to white men in music and it's it it just saddens me especially when i think about um people like nina simone and people that uh that clock it people that realize it i think it's 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 really sad you know there's like um there's a story about um about uh Miles Davis going to um um to Louis Armstrong's birthday and and how people kind of were somewhat shocked by it because you know Miles Davis would say a lot of derogatory things about Louis Armstrong for for essentially pandering to uh like white america in order to you know get on stage and get fame blah, blah blah but you know he obviously respected and loved the armstrong and i and i think that deep down there's a sense a sense of you know sometimes you have to like have no choice i mean him doing that then did pave the way for a lot of other amazing musicians miles included but these are things are <laughs> heavily on my mind especially now especially now that i feel like i've been making music for quite some time i it's a little disheartening to realize that regardless of how far i think i can go there's a ceiling to it and 
I know. And, and, and you know, that's, that's what I get when I listen to people like Nina and, and Stevie. It's this feeling of ex- exceptional artistry that I feel like just doesn't get honored. I mean, do you know, do you know the Nicholas Brothers? Have you ever, I, I love the Nicholas Brothers. They were, they're uh, dancers, if anyone doesn't know, but, um, if you have the time, look up Nicholas, just type into Google Nicholas Brothers Staircase and you'll bear witness to what Fred Astaire called the greatest dance routine ever put to film. And it truly, truly is. It is so out of this world. And you can watch them dance in any film and it is, it's the, the, the greatest feeling you see them just like shooting out the best they can do like ultimate ultimate joy and I was actually informed recently and I didn't know this but um that the scenes those scenes that they were in in those films I mean I always was aware that they had nothing to do with the storyline but I was only last week informed that the reason they had nothing to do with the storyline was because for when they wanted to show the film in the south they could delete the scene and so it was these guys just doing, doing their best and just not being able to, even with someone like Fred Astaire, who is seen as the best dancer, saying that these guys are the best dancers still isn't enough. And so, I don't know, I don't really have a point to this, but it's just, it's, it's what I get from a lot of these artists that I, I really admire and look up to which is part of the reason why we know the name Fred Astaire, but we might not know who the Nicholas brothers are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know. um, speaking of uh, audiences who gets to see things, who gets to appreciate things, who is allowed to understand and view things in certain contexts, uh, the year that Nina Simone recorded, that's actually a cover um, of yeah. like a, a, a black gospel song, um, originally from the late 20s, I believe. Yeah. She recorded it in 1969 and... Um, she performed in the Philharmonic Hall in New York in the same year. And there was something that she said that was so beautiful um, and very pointed because this is 50 years since, almost 50 years since she said this. And she said, and I, I want to quote it to get it right. This music is not addressed primarily to white people, though it does not put you down in any way. It simply ignores you. For my people need all the inspiration and love that they can get. Wow, that's amazing. Um, and then she went on to play Young Gifted in Black. Mm. I know this is a song that, is, that you and that you and Solange are very fond of. You've performed together. Yeah. Tell me about performing blackness in white spaces as a classically trained man. It's, um, it's, it's, it's interesting, I'll tell you that. I mean, it's the same. Um, it's really funny. Um, this is a slight tangent, but, you know... Um, say if I'm in a cab or somewhere and someone will ask what I do and I'll say I'm a musician (laughs) reluctantly (laughs) and um, then you know they'll say like oh like what do you do like reggae rap it's always always the question and so I always reply and say classical because why not, you know? <laughs> but, well, it's true. You know, it's, that's the thing. It's like I grew up classically trained and I, it's the, 
music I ma- I mainly listen to and I always end up in these you know sometimes that actually ends up in some really great conversations like it, it can lead to some really uh, I remember one conversation on a, a plane I had with this woman and it, it was such an amazing plane ride because of it because it turned out she was a member of uh, Met Opera for the last like 20 years and so we had this amazing conversation but you know other times the conversation isn't as enlightening but um especially when you're stuck on a plane exactly <laughs> but um but you know I just really try and it sounds cliche I know but I really just try and be myself because I don't think there's anything else I can do or be I think that is what that means uh to me my whole thing is that kind of like what she says, like I'm not ever trying to make people feel like they're not wanted. Because um, I think everyone takes what they want from music and art and, you know, all kinds of means. Like, you know, I choose to take what I want to take from certain things. I remember um, a few years ago, I bought the biography of Charles Ives. And I was super excited about it. And I got home and I, I just opened up a random page. And it was a picture of him in high school in blackface. And I was just like, oh, Charles, no, please. <laughs> like, you know, this is like a, this is an, an ongoing thing as, uh, as a black classical fan you kind of have to just like take the l sometimes you know but um but um but you know i i choose to take what i wanted to take i i mean if he's i mean i don't want to judge him i mean i kind of do but if you know if it's okay we all judge <laughs> but you know like if he's a piece of shit then I'm going to choose to maybe take some some of his atonality lessons and use it for myself in my way. So, I mean, what that's like a kind of a harsh example of what I was trying to get to. But um, when I perform, and if it's primarily a white space, like I, I really am, I want people to just see me and... They can be any race, and, but they, I want them to kind of just see who I am and not forget. It's easy to forget when you're watching someone perform. And obviously that's kind of fine, but I, I just, I think uh, I've kind of, I've gone through some things and, I've, and I'm really like laying it all out. Like it takes me so much to... To perform, it's really like I have to. I can be, I can be kind of unpleasant to be around after because it really takes like so much um, from me because it's it's not um, it's not really a natural thing for me. But um, I just I just hope people can see that I'm like really really given given myself. I had a moment in the summer where I was playing a festival in Europe and I had 
a realization that I was the only person dancing. <laughs> and it really, um, it really, really shook me. It really made me feel not, not good because I felt um, eyes on me, but not, not in a way that was uh, particularly warm. It felt like a curiosity. And and so um, that was that was really interesting because obviously I'm aware that that's me making assumptions as well. You know, I'm aware that part of part of that situation is how I'm receiving what is kind of coming towards me, and then me turning back out. And I I, I wrote something somewhat. Uh, close to this subject on the album there's a song called um, uh, Hands Up no no wait not Hands Up is it Hands Up? <laughs> is it the one where you're aware of the white women? But You <laughs> I wrote a song called But You on the album which is um, yeah about uh, walking down the street and uh, I'm the only person on the street and there's like a young white woman in front of me and I'm thinking like, should I just cross the road now or should I walk faster or should I stay walking slowly? Like I can sense that maybe she feels like slightly threatened by my presence. And it's, and, and I was kind of doing the same thing where it's like, I am projecting that on myself as much as anyone else's. And so, so I've tried now with a, like live performances to um, to not put that on myself, that feeling that I feel like I'm the only person dancing and, you know, the eyes are there kind of out of curiosity to see what is happening. Um, I'm, I'm trying to now to fully project kind of outwards and um, and try and make something like kind of fun and have people in, enjoy the show, you know. One of the most interesting things that you do, I think, as a musician is your ability to, like, harness quite a particular feminine energy, either in your own voice or through other, or through other women. Um, and I'd like to know about this... I hesitate to use the word fluidity because that kind of takes away from the sincerity of either one or the other and the relationship that they can have it's not necessarily the same but it's mutual um could you talk about your role as a songwriter writing for women and then using your own voice in a feminine way yeah um so when i'm if i'm writing i guess there's different there's different ways this happens but uh sometimes maybe i've written a song already and uh and someone wants that song to use it. Um, in that sense, I guess they're usually just um, transposing to fit how, how they feel. I'm, I'm also like not a precious songwriter, like at all. Like I'm kind of, if I, I want them, I want as much from them as can happen so um so when i'm writing with women it's really um all i want to do is uh essentially just be there to help in any way i can and to 
do the things that I feel like I can do best and for them to do what they feel like they can do best. And that's not trying that's not shutting out any form of creativity or getting out of comfort zone, but um there's a real power, I've always felt this in knowing what it is you can do and what you can you can bring. And so um so I always want their voice, not like, you know, singing voice, but their voice to to come out because I, I you know, I can't speak for them. I, I can't speak for anyone that's uh, like, you know, not just women. And so, so, so my, my part in it is that I really just want to be there to help make the best that I can and that they can. And I learn from it. I mean, I don't, go into it as this like like I'm the man that will help you <laughs> like you know like I'm going I've got in this love. you know exactly like I, I'm like learning so much like I learned so much from the times I've worked with Carly Rae Jepsen I, I it's has been really like really interesting really eye-opening to me because there's so much that uh, she does and that she can do that I'm in awe of and that's kind of the same with everyone I work with I mean with Laurelie with the Best To You track first of all I, I feel blessed that she even did that because I'm like in love with her production style I think she's like she's like one of my favourite producers you know and, it's, and this kind of goes back to what we were saying before because you know, if someone was to mention Empress Of, you probably don't think, oh, like, producer. But, you know, she <laughs> wrote and produced everything you hear from her. And so, um, so yeah, so for her to then, like, bring what she does and her voice onto my track is, um, I felt like that was a real, real blessing. And so I, I'm, that's really what it is. Like, those moments on my album... Um, with uh say like Lolly or Bayer nineteen ninety one and it's really I'm letting them do what they want to uh show and say in, in my music. If something in that triggers them then I really I like I wanna hear it. As someone who is been writing music for years, has worked with many others, with Solange Knowles uh, that you mentioned before, Empress of, Carly Rae Jepsen, work with, I'm not going to say more women than men, I'm not going to put it on a list, uh, <laughs> but it seems to be like a, like a loving habit. Mm. Um, do you write, ever write from a female perspective of your own? Because I see these like, the fleshing out of like, a, a, a Princess Camille, in mm. some of the stuff that you do, how he would pitch his vocals for a verse, sing from a female perspective, but yeah, still yeah. as as Prince. Is that something that you have an affinity with? Because I hear it in some of your music and I think that rather than instead of, if you, like, if you can't find a woman to work with, you still have that within you that you can express in a musical sense. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, it's never... I, I, I think more on the first album because kind of like what I said before about how like if something is if I can get 
you know, if there's a piano there, I'll use a piano. It's kind of the first album was so just me in my bedroom with like nothing like else around. Um, that a lot of the times I was trying to, I knew the mood mood I wanted to get to, and I would try and um, get there myself vocally. But it was never, it never felt like it was really there. And I was somewhat scared to. D- it sounds insane, but I was scared to do anything. Like, I was scared that I could do what I want. It, it's a weird feeling, but I think that sometimes happens in in music. Like, you, you sometimes think, um, set rules for yourself without being aware that you're even doing it. But you, it's no, you can do what you want. And I feel like I didn't really realize that until um, maybe when I was doing... Um, Cupid Deluxe and I started thinking like oh I get you know I started thinking about the music as not um, I mean it might sound cheesy but I started thinking of it as not just like this is a song on uh, a Blood Orange album I was just thinking about it as music that I would want to listen to and so as music I would want to listen to what would make this song piece of music the best it can be and uh, that to me is other people's minds and other people's uh, tastes that I really trust and look up to. So everyone that um, ever is on my records, they're all people I look up to. And it's all opinions that... It's people people I'm a fan of. I mean, there's... um, on the song Augustine on my the last album, Aaron Main, who plays as Porches, has a credit <laughs> as and it's I mean, I don't think anyone's got the physical, but <laughs> on the physical it says uh third hook suggest third chords in hook suggestion credited to Aaron Main <laughs> because he was in the room and I was working on the song and he started playing guitar just because you know he was bored or whatever, and he added a uh, an an F sharp to um, uh, F sharp to the B minor, and it was just better than what I had. I mean, <laughs> so I so I used it, and that's kind of the the vibe of when I'm making music. I mean, honestly, if you're a friend, you don't even have to be a musician, but if I value you as a person and your opinions on things and you want to add to this then like feel free to add to it because i don't claim to know what's best um i just kind of want music to be as enjoyable for me as it is for other people well it has been very enjoyable today so uh before we go to questions thank you very much dev hines thank you thanks Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Academy. The Red Bull Music Academy is a world-traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in Montreal. But we do events around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. 
In short, it's a lot of stuff, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion anyway. If you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Thanks for listening.